as we prepare to reflect on God's word for us today, let us pray. Father, whether because of my words or in spite of them, may your word be spoken. And whether we come with willing ears or stubborn ones, help us to hear. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Back in 2018, there was a tourism agency organization in Southern California that conducted a study of more than 2,000 parents of school-aged children to try and figure out why they weren't taking more vacations. Point of this organization was to, to get people to come to Southern California and spend more money. And it was the, the point of the survey was to ask, how much money do we have to spend to get you to come here and spend even more? But in the results of that survey was another seemingly tangential effect or uh, fact that might in the end have more than we dare guess to say about why it is so hard to spend a little time away. People who conducted the survey found that among the families they surveyed, on average, those families spent 37 minutes a day all together. 37 minutes. How much of that was just getting from home to school or work? or an after-school activity here in Mobile. 37 minutes, that's less time than we spend watching Netflix on average. You might have already spent 30 minutes, 37 minutes on Instagram today or just reading the news, getting caught up on things in the world. It's easy to blow through 37 minutes. Yet this study suggested that it is the fundamental fact to the reality of life among families in the wild matrix that is the Monday to Friday schedule. One Christian commenter in the Atlantic recently added this note, our lives are stretched like a rubber band about to snap. Been four weeks now that we've been in the Sermon on the Mount, and as we've done from the beginning, we are paying special attention to the worries that Jesus gives special attention to in this sermon. He talks about the core concerns and the troubles that we all share in one form or another. Though it is a sermon about the kingdom of heaven, at every single moment, Jesus is very aware of the worries we have here and now. We've talked about the worries over what we will wear, worries about fashion. We've talked about finances and the future. And today, Jesus has a word for us about family. And for some of us, our worries about our families are so persistent, so comprehensive, so soul deep, that those worries make all the other worries seem small by comparison. And there are others of us here this morning for whom family is our one respite from all those other worries for whom family feels like the most dependable, consistent thing in our lives. But no matter where we sit along that spectrum, Jesus has a word for us today, a word that both challenges and encourages us because Jesus is all too aware of what happens when we take the strongest bonds in our lives and we put upon them more than they can handle. We stretch them beyond their strength. Jesus has a word of preemptive compassion for us today so that we can give holy attention to one of the holiest gifts that God gives us. It's preemptive attention because Jesus knows that 
it is easy to think that we've got it all figured out, at least until it's too late. We've mentioned before that the Sermon on the Mount, it's, it's kind of Jesus' stump speech. It is the vision of the kingdom of God that Jesus would lay out whenever he visited a new place. He began to announce the kingdom of God is near in a new city. In the Gospel of Luke, we hear about a time that Jesus offered this stump speech while he was standing on a broad plain. But in the Gospel of Matthew, we hear about a time that Jesus preached it from a small mountain, probably something we would call a hill. When Matthew highlights Jesus standing on the mountain, it is one of Matthew's many ways of comparing Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount with the teaching that God gave through Moses at Mount Sinai. And Jesus himself makes the comparison between the two very clear in what we read today as he reminds his readers of the Ten Commandments. You remember those. We preached about them just a couple months ago. You heard a couple of them a moment ago. You remember how God told the people things like, honor your mother and father, do not commit adultery. And this morning, I imagine there are many of us, just as there were in Jesus' crowd of all 2,000 or so, 2,000 years ago. There are many of us here today who hear those commandments and think of them as a checklist. I haven't cursed my mother or father today. Check. I haven't had time to eat a meal that wasn't wrapped in paper. I definitely have not time, had time to live out the lyrics of a Loretta Lynn song. Check. But Jesus goes beyond simply reciting the old checklist. Instead, he offers a series of reversal statements. He says, you have heard it said, but I say to you this. And what Jesus tells the people is not that the old rules don't apply. Instead, he deepens the teaching. He pulls back the curtain. He wants to show us the heart of God that is behind these teachings. And then, here's the kicker. Jesus insists that the only way we can know the heart of God is if we are willing to dare a glimpse at our own hearts. And of course, looking at our own heart is precisely the thing that some of us are most afraid of. Most of our fears are unfounded. One of the fears that keeps us from daring the difficult work of looking at our heart is that we just never learn to distinguish temptation from sin. Temptation in itself is not sin. Giving in to temptation, cultivating temptation, that's where sin begins. So, for instance, in his teaching today, Jesus is not asking us to treat each other with fear or to treat our fearfully and wonderfully made bodies or those of our neighbors as if they are a potential danger walking all around us, trying to pull us into trouble. Jesus is not condemning us for momentary flashes of desire. He's not shaming us for those moments when we are at our wit's end, on our last nerve, when we are just so tired of saying to our children, no, you cannot have that plunger that looks like a lightsaber. No, you can't carry all those rocks home in your pockets. They just won't fit. No, you cannot not tell me where you are going. Jesus knows all about temptation. He knows what it's like to be brought to the very brink. Because Jesus was not just tempted in every way that we are. Jesus was more tempted than any of us. 
We can know this because we know that we usually give in to temptation while it's still warming up. But Jesus went all 10 rounds with all the temptations the world can give. And he was not ashamed of that. He was not afraid to know his heart, to share it with the Father. He was not afraid to confess his fears, his reluctance to, to God. But as long as we confuse temptation with sin, we'll be afraid of looking at our own heart. Which is a shame. Because Jesus demonstrates for us that if we are willing to know our heart, God will save us a world of trouble. The trouble comes when we ignore the warning signs and the red flags that we feel in our own heart rate. The trouble comes not at first sight, but it comes in the second and the third and the fourth look that we seek out. It comes from intentionally letting that text thread go a little too far. It comes from cultivating dreams of what we swear we'd never do. That's the kind of trouble that comes from denying and avoiding what's going on in your own heart. But there is a better way. And Jesus is teaching us that we can reorder our desires. Rather than just simply depressing them or suppressing them, we can take our longings and we can choose to direct them towards something better. He invites the parents in his audience that day to think about how much they desire to do right by their children. And he says, that's just the beginning. What it means to truly want what is good. C.S. Lewis once put it this way. He said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies along the curb because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. See, it turns out that one of our superpowers as humans is that there is no gift so good from God that we can't find a way to misuse it. We are surrounded by shows and books and general cultural attitudes that seek to normalize at best and encourage at worst an attention on something less than the fullness of what God desires for us. And so we are tempted to settle for relationships less committed to us than Christ is. We settle for relationships that are less marked by purity of intent and care than the Holy Spirit's own relationship with us. We settle for relationships that are less patient and more fearful than the Heavenly Father's own eternal patience with us. But the only way we can truly know the heart of God, the way He wants to be known, is to let Him cultivate that kind of heart within us. It's rarely as attention-grabbing as all the images around us or the moments when our patience with each other snaps the fight for our heart's health in a world that boasts of instant pleasure and happiness. That fight is a daily battle that usually goes unnoticed in a hectic world. And a hardened heart within us 
or posture away from God does not usually come in one instant and big moral failure, though that can happen. It comes more often through the silent and slow chasing of small temptations. Keeping a sincere desire for God demands great intention, intention with our eyes and our minds and our bodies, and most of all, our hearts. And that's why it's the inner life that Jesus is so concerned about. And knowing that helps us make sense of the most extreme warning Jesus gives us today. Dallas Willard had a great insight into that bit we read about cutting off your hand and plucking out your eye. Dallas Willard once wrote, If you could cut off everything that caused you to sin and roll into heaven as a bloody stump, you could still have a wicked heart. In other words, you could still be you. Eliminating body parts will not change that. Jesus is not looking for behavior modification. He is looking for heart transformation. And the real clue to all this comes a little bit later in the Gospel of Matthew when Jesus talks about one of the most difficult and sensitive ways that a heart can break. In Matthew 19, a little later in the Gospel, some hecklers challenge Jesus about the teaching that he offers in the Sermon on the Mount. They ask, so do you think that Moses was putting us on a slippery slope? If one divorce is okay, does that mean it's always and everywhere okay? And Jesus does not choose to answer them with case law, with if-then statements, and endless parsing of each possible situation. Instead, he says, the laws of Moses were given because your hearts were hard. But it wasn't always that way. And it doesn't have to be that way. See, Jesus knows. When we pull out our microscope so we can read the finest of the print on all the endless loopholes and legalisms, it's usually our way of avoiding a glimpse at our own heart. Maybe that's why Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount. By talking about the one family relationship where we will find a way to excuse any kind of worry and call it love. I mean, when it comes to children, folks worry about anything and everything. All in the name of love. Worry about where they are on the growth chart. Worry about whether they've developed Fine motor skills. I'm not sure I ever did. We worry about the pressure they face at school, academics, athletics, arts. We worry about the pressures that come from their friends. Pressure to be a good friend. To be a good friend even when good friends aren't being good. Most of all, we worry about the pressure they might feel to please us. The loving, caring adults who only want them to know that we love them so much we would burst from it. And then we keep our fingers crossed that they might act a little bit like Jesus towards their buddies and teachers during all that high-pressure life and especially toward us, the parents. Isn't it wild? How even the softest and most flexible love 
a love that will stretch and reshape itself endlessly to make room for whomever our children turn out to be. Isn't it wild how immovable and how brittle, how unsoft that love can feel when it is stretched so taut that it feels on the verge of breaking? There's a reason the rubber band feels ready to snap. It's because we're trying to hold together what only God's love is wide enough to contain. It's because we've forgotten that his love is wider and his heart is softer than even our wildest imaginings. And when we think we have finally learned what it means to walk with our own heart walking around outside of us in the world, we've only just begun to discover God's love toward us. And so Jesus says, if you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? I remember a long, long time ago, I asked my folks for a baseball glove. I didn't really know the first thing about the sport, but and I was short and I was slow, clumsy from my childhood illness. But I was getting to be at that age where all the other kids collected cards and played baseball, and so I wanted into. And I remember that that particular week, neither of my parents had the chance to go get me a new glove before tryouts. So I walked onto that field with my dad's old church league softball glove. It was way too big. Even today, my dad's hands are like bear paws. They just swallow the hand of anyone he's shaking hands with. You can imagine how ridiculous his softball glove looked dangling off the left arm of a first grader. It was old. It was weathered. It did not have a machine-printed autograph of the biggest star in baseball to sell it to me. But because it was old, it was also soft. And because it was soft, it caught absolutely everything. All I had to do was get my hand in the vicinity of the ball and the pocket of that glove would swallow it up. The hardest line drive hit straight at me would settle into the pocket like it was falling on a pillow. Turns out it was a very good gift. And it turns out we hardly even know what we're asking for when we pray for our families for our loved ones. To quote a recent hit movie about families, our prayers for our families are usually prayers for everything, everywhere, all at once. And here's the good news. That's where God is. In everything, everywhere, all at once. His love for his bride, the church, is more faithful than we could ever be. The care and the wisdom he wants to pour into our lives and to, into our parents' lives, into our children's and siblings' and our neighbors' lives, it is already more care and wisdom than we could ask for. He loves them all even more than we do. And he loves you in just that same way. And he longs to give you good gifts. So maybe that's where our prayers for our families should begin with God's heart. Whatever you are praying for your loved one, 
Remember that God is already at work bringing it into their lives. God's heart got there before yours did. God's longing is deeper and wider than even yours. God's love is already there, waiting for you to pay attention, waiting for a heart that is soft enough that not a single bit of grace will get by you or fall to the ground. Imagine giving your family a heart soft enough to listen with great intention, with our minds, our bodies, our eyes, and of course, our hearts. Wouldn't that be a miraculous way to spend 37 minutes a day? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.